Singularity. Hello everyone, my name is Nicola aka Socrates and you're watching Singularity One-on-One. Singularity One-on-One is a regular podcast feature of Singularity Weblog and if you guys enjoy the show, you can show your support by either writing a very brief review on iTunes or simply going to our donations page and making a donation. Today, my guest on the show is Jerome C. Glenn. Jerome is the co-founder and director of the Millennium Project. He is known for inventing the futures wheel technique and among many other things is cited as an expert on future studies methodology. As a director of the Millennium Project, Glenn is also the primary author of their annual State of the Future reports and editor of Future Research Methodology 1.0 through 3.0. Hi, Jerome, and welcome to Singularity One-on-One. Hello, nice to be here. Fantastic. Uh, Jerome, let me start uh, with uh, a few questions about uh, your organization. I know that your think tank is a very new kind of organization, so why don't you tell us a little bit more about the Millennium Project? Okay, and I'd be happy if you interrupt at any point because I've talked about this too often and so I sometimes don't say something uh, as coherent as I ought to. Uh, it, uh, the, it's, the motivation was to create a think tank on behalf of humanity, not on behalf of a country or an ideology or a single issue, but the whole game. Uh, I had worked for different think tanks, right wing, left wing, up wing, down wing think tanks. And if think tank X says it, then think tank Y says it's wrong. You know, uh, all this sort of jealousy stuff, it's, it's really annoying. And um, I, f- I found it increasingly uh, intolerable. So fortunately, um, another guy named Ted Gordon, who uh, gave you the uh, cross-impact analysis. Uh, it was part of the early RAND Corporation team on Delphi, uh, trend impact analysis. He's probably contributed more to methodology, uh, futures methodology, than anybody else alive. Uh, he also gave us the third stage of the Apollo rocket. So when somebody says, it doesn't really take rocket science, I say, yes, it does, and there's our rocket science right over there. <laughs> um, so anyway, we, we teamed up. Uh, around 1988, at least to think together, um, the, the motivation was the year 2000 was coming up, and guys like you would call us up and say, okay, the new millennium, what's the next millennium, what's happening? And if we had too much to drink the night before, we might say something stupid. <laughs> so... The thought was, his thought was, let's create a mega study, just a massive study. Now, he was working for, at the time, the chairman at the time, of what was called the the Futures Group. It was the first for-profit think tank in the United States. Um, And I said, I don't want to do a mega study. Because the history of future studies is like a series of these bell curve, mega study this, mega study that, big applause, everybody gets in a jet plane, they take off, they go home, and happens. Um, so I didn't want to do that. What I wanted to do was to create a mega system to crank out mega studies all the time. Uh, so that was the early motivation. And what it has evolved into uh, is what we like to call a trans institution. And what I mean by a, tra- a trans institution doesn't exist legally yet. It's just a concept. 
because um, we have for-profit law, we have non-profit law, and I'm suggesting we have a third category called trans-institution law. Mm-hmm. A, tr- a trans-institution would be, if it ever gets put into legal parlance, uh, it would be an entity. It could be for anything. It could be ours is for futures, but you could do one for entertainment, you could do one for AIDS, you could do one for education, for anything. Mm-hmm. But the idea was that the entity would have whatever governing body it's got would have to have some people from government, some people from business, some people from universities, some people from NGOs, and some people from international UN organizations. Why? Well, so one part is the governing part. The people who do the work should come from all those categories, but not a majority of anyone. The money should come from all those categories, but not a majority of anyone. The value added should be for all those categories. Um, so if you do that, I would say you're a trans institution. Now, the Millennium Project is organized like that. And, and here's the, one of the advantages, or a couple of the advantages. When we do something, this think tank, as a trans institution, has to make sense to the bottom line, because the business is there. It has to make sense uh, politically, because government is there. It has to make sense for knowledge, because the universities are there. It has to make sense um, internationally, because the UN or international systems are there. They have to be sensitive to that. Mm-hmm. Uh, it has to have its values together, because the NGOs are there. The second advantage is that you can act through all those categories. All right? uh, so you know, if you have at the table all these different entities, in, institutional categories, that means you're a little bit of everything and have tremendous flexibility. Yeah. So anyway, so the motivation uh, was basically to create a, a sort of a neutral center cutting across nation states and institutional categories where we could th- think together. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, we produce an annual State of the Future report as a management technique to ourselves, because as I mentioned originally, you have all these studies, and so what? You know, the future this and the future that, then so what? There's not an accumulative sense of one study folding into the next, folding into the next. Just like your brain, you don't, just because you learned something today doesn't mean you threw out what you knew yesterday. Mm-hmm. So the idea was to create uh, a system that would be constantly updating. And the way we would force ourselves to do that is by this annual report. So each year, we're supposed to do this annual report, and each year should be better. So anybody can go back to our 1997 report and all the way up to the present tense and see, did we improve each year or not? Yeah. Um, so it would be a way to know, are we doing a better job or not? And then we're going to change that later on. We can talk about this later on into a collective intelligence system mm-hmm. so that it's not only annually updated, it's daily updated. I see. So, so that's very interesting, and we're going to come back to many of those things that you mentioned. But um, let me just ask you, what about the name? Why call it the Millennium Project? Uh-huh. Well, because in 1988, people weren't using that term yet. <laughs> now you got tons of money in projects all over the world. Yeah. <laughs> but in you 1988, have the millennium goals of the UN and all right, that. Right, right, right. As a matter of fact, I just got a letter the other day addressed to Jeffrey Sachs' Millennium Project, but this is a different Millennium Project. <laughs> uh-huh. Anyway, the reason for the term was um, that it would be our gift from our millennium to the next millennium. 
I, I, I mean, imagine a thousand years ago, somebody created some system so that you had the Vikings views and the Chinese views and the different stuff together. And so you could see how the world was getting together. They didn't have the capability to do it. We do. So we did it. So but a par part of it was the idea of a gift from one millennium to another. Mm -hmm. uh, the second was uh, some money was coming up. Uh, people would be, it would be a way of focusing around it. Uh, so that was it. And then the name stuck. We weren't sure we were ever going to get to the year 2000. And now here we are to 2012 and still cooking. Um, some people say we ought to change the name. Maybe we should. But uh, anyway, people know us that way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because I, I would think it, that's a very uh, appropriate name in the 90s and perhaps the first few years. But Imagine the year 2050, which we're going to talk about uh, a bit later. And then, are you still going to be called the Millennium Project? Well, then it's only 50 years away to the next millennium. <laughs> <laughs> we'll still be ahead. <laughs> All right. Okay. But I'll take your take your thoughts. As a matter of fact, your, your users can come up with a name, and we'll, we'll consider them all. <laughs> sure, sure. Yeah. Uh, that's, by the way, how I came with my tagline. I basically ran a little competition. Uh, I gave away a couple of books. Uh, by Ray Kurzweil, and uh, people basically uh, made suggestions for the best tagline, and the, w the one that we liked the most was A Better Future, Better You. And Excellent. So, so I, I didn't come up with my own tagline. Somebody oh, else very did. good. <laughs> Crowdsourcing. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed. Um, so, so tell us a little bit more about the kinds of projects that you do there. Okay, uh, we have uh, now 46 nodes around You're the world. Growing rapidly, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> um, and each of these nodes can initiate projects or activities. Uh, by a node, what I mean is like the old-fashioned idea of the intersection of two or more networks, mm -hmm. hence networks of governments, networks of universities, and so forth. Um, so imagine like a, a soccer ball or football round ball, and you have all these little nodes all around the world. Each one can be in charge of something, so they can initiate a study. Yeah. And say, like for example, in Cairo some years ago, um, they said uh, there's no Middle East peace scenarios. And I said, come on. Middle East peace has got to be the biggest thing studied on the planet. <laughs> and they said, no, 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 but there's no scenarios. Now I use the word and define it very precisely. I don't mean a discussion about the future. Mm -hmm. I don't mean a projection. I mean a story. So when someone says, what's the story of the scenario? That's, rep that's like saying uh, unmarried men are bachelors. It's, it's, a, it's, it's, it's a tautology. It repeats itself. Mm -hmm. A scenario is a story. If it's not a story, it's not a scenario. It's a discussion. Perfectly fine to have discussions, but it's not a scenario. A scenario is a, is a story that connects a future state or condition uh, with the present tense with cause and effect links mm -hmm. that are plausible, that illustrate decision points. Right? So, and, and, that's, and, I, and I insist this way because when people say, uh, how do you know what you don't know? You can't know the unknowns. I say, yes, you can. You start to write a story. Try it out. Your, your listeners, try it out. Just try to write a story about the future. Mm -hmm. And at some point, you'll get to some point that says, geez, I have no idea how that will happen next. I never thought about that. That's how you get to the unknown unknown. And you don't get there unless you try to actually write a story. If you just discuss it, then you're re repeating a lot of the tapes that's in your head already. Anyway. Let so, me stop you here for one yeah. second, though, because, sure. you know, I've interviewed a bunch of uh, well-known science fiction writers like Robert J. Sawyer, Charles Stross, Werner Vinge, and so on. And the interesting thing about 
them is that one that, at least for me was that I discovered that most of them don't see themselves as actually predicting the future in any way. Mm-hmm. Um, so, for example, Charles Stross said something like, "Basically, I write stories about improbable uh, mm-hmm. scenarios uh, and their impact of the human of, on the human condition." Right. Uh, Werner Vinge said something like, well, I just try to make sense of the world the way I see it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and hopefully in the process, I help others make sense of it too. Mm-hmm. And, and so on. But none of them really said they were trying to go for prediction. So uh, right. what do you think? How do you square that with what you just said? Because those people do those scenarios yeah. for yeah, a but living. They, but, yeah, but they don't know. They're doing stories, but they don't. Remember, the first part I said is connect. Uh-huh. to the present tense. And this is why futurists are jealous of science fiction writers. They don't have to connect it to the present tense. We do. <laughs> you know, we have to have name, rank, and serial number. <laughs> they can say, well, here we are in the year 3000. Yeah, how'd you get there? The futurists can't do that. Science fiction writers can do that. That's their freedom. Science fiction is probably the freest art form there is. They can just let it go. But still, to make it very plausible, you have to have some continuity between the present and the future. Especially, say, for example, Werner Vinge, he writes often in the very near future. And even Cory Doctorow and, and uh, uh, Charles Stross, they just published The Rupture of the, New, uh, of the Nerds uh, book, which is happening, I think, in like the mid-teens uh, of, of, of you know, 2015, right. 2020, sort of. So... Many authors write very close, and to make it plausible, you have to connect it to the present. <laughs> yeah, but they don't that much. I mean, they don't. All right, for example, you, you, you take, um, all right, your, your viewers can mm-hmm. go to our website, mm-hmm. millennium-project.org, yep. two L's and two N's. They go to Global Scenarios, click that on, and then they'll have different scenarios. There'll be, there'll be uh, energy scenarios, S&T scenarios, and the Middle East peace scenarios. And they can click on the Middle East peace scenarios, go to Waterworks. And you can see how it evolves step by step by step by step by step mm-hmm. with names, locations that yeah. you can read about in the newspapers, real, real people and so forth. Yeah. Uh, science fiction writers, they, they can skip over a lot of stuff. <laughs> Whereas we're not allowed to do that because we're doing it for someone to make decisions today. And science fiction is also supposed to be entertaining. You know, we shouldn't be boring, but we're more boring than science fiction writers. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so sorry for this interruption. So let's let's go back to the. So all right, so so how do we initiate stuff? So here's our our our, our, the chairman of our node in Cairo says, look, you know, we got this mess in the Middle East. Yeah. People are arguing, not getting anything done, and they're killing. We need to create a a peace scenario. And I'm, and, I'm, and I'm saying, baloney, there's tons of them been written. So he said, all right, you do your homework and find. I could not find any. And I, by the definition, a story that connects cause, effect, cause, effect, illustrating decision points along the way. Mm-hmm. Uh, I couldn't find any. So he said, so after a year, we even discussed it because this is something that could rip the Millennium Project apart because we've got left wing, right wing, up wing, down wing. We have a node in Iran. We've got an node in Israel. I mean, you know, this is, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> this is difficult to hold together such a system. So uh, we finally began. It is a long, torturous process and wrote these scenarios.
so Go let ahead. me ask you this now that scenario that story that you are referring to do you think that having it would actually help resolving that uh, issue that that conflict that's been going on for 60 years and would sort of help in bringing forth the peaceful outcome that we're looking for possibly uh it's still in process as we speak uh in the process of doing the scenario as you can imagine we spoke with every group you can imagine and um in the process, one of them was the uh, Muslim Brotherhood. And for the viewers that don't know, the Muslim Brotherhood was founded in 1928 or so. Yeah. And uh, it is the mother of almost all the Islamist groups around the world. They're not in charge of everybody, but it's like parents still have some influence on the children sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> so they have in the um, in the Muslim Brotherhood. There's a, a unit called the Politburo, and uh, they're very well educated uh, people. Uh, and they said uh, in the process of uh, this discussion uh, that you know we've had Islamic power twice in history before. Came up, came down. Came up and came down. We're now in the up up swing. Why won't we bell curve back down again? Mm -hmm. Good question. Now, we didn't, ha we didn't ask that question per se, but the process of putting the scenarios together triggered internal review, and so they, they did that conversation. Mm -hmm. The answer was, uh, one, we were not connected to the political, not political, we're not connected to the institutional structure of the day. Okay, so if, if, the, if they're going to maintain political power or a growth of political power, then they have to be connected to the institutional structures of the day. So what are they? Well, obviously one is a nation state. In the past, it was like the nation of Islam. What do you need these dotted lines on the map for? They're all illusions anyway. Mm -hmm. I said, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll accept that. We'll accept nation state structure. Uh, and within a nation state structure, so you could call yourself an Egyptian and not be anti-Islam. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, what's the power of an individual? And the power of an individual, I don't want to go through all this detail. This gets complex. Uh, but there is actually there's a, a four-step strategy that they created. Um, that and the goal is to what? The goal, their goal, was to maintain the momentum of political power and not become a bell curve going back down again. From their own selfish point of view, but how Correct. is that making us better? How is that helping ah, us resolve the ah, issues? Okay, because in order to do that, oh boy, I guess I can go into this. <laughs> no, um, you don't have to. I, I, I just, I'm yeah, just but, trying right, to let's, figure let's, out let's, let's, how right, let's is put it. it let's, let's put it this way. You'll notice during the Egyptian revolution, um, a lot of people said, wow, the Muslim Brotherhood. They're acting very reasonable. Did you notice that? Well, there's a lot of concern, but Hillary Clinton did go and meet with them, and, and so that showed, you know, I, I think a, a very nice gesture. And yeah, so there even, is optimism even be, generally. Yeah, but even before that, even before that, uh, even before Hillary, because she's the head of state. Yeah. You know, you believe in democracy? <laughs> totally. Anyway. Yes. Okay, so... 
Uh, even before that, though, during the revolution period and during the evolution uh, up to the present tense, a lot of people said, wow, they're acting very reasonable. One of the first statements they made is that they'll accept international treaties. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, let's take a, I'll do this very briefly. Step one, you can become a citizen of a country. You can accept yourself as a citizen of a country. You can run for political office. Uh, where you're outlawed, which was the case in Egypt and many countries, you call yourself an independent. That's why five years or so ago, all of a sudden, quote, out of nowhere, the independent party took over 20 or more percent of the legislature. Well, that was the brotherhood, mm-hmm. and that was part of this four-step process. Mm-hmm. Step two is what they call a consequence of democracy. That means you go in power and out of power, like Turkey, yeah. not like Tunisia. Yes. Uh, not Tunisia, but Algeria. Because uh, they said in Algeria, they said, you don't re-elect God, there'll be one election, and that's it. Uh-huh. And that's why the military took over there. Uh-huh. Uh, step three, and this is where they recognize Israel. If you accept being in and out of power, like Turkey, and you accept that you're electing in little parties and so forth, political parties taking over, then you, the Islamic party, if you get elected in a country which has um, uh, accepted treaties, because treaties is that relationship between nation states which was not recognized before, then you have to accept Israel. That becomes a consequence uh, of, of, of um, treaty relationships. Now, you can see some evidence of this when Hamas got elected. When Hamas got elected, you go back to the tape. I challenge your viewers to do this. Go back to the original interview. The microphone went into his mouth after, right after the election, and it said, will you recognize Israel? And he said, no, comma, not at this time. That sentence had never been said by an Islamist political leader, ever. Never. That was a change. Now, why did he mean not at this time? Well, because they hadn't finished the four-step process, because you had to go through the major Islamic leaders around the world to have a conversation to do this. It wasn't finished yet. Mm-hmm. Secondly, some people said, well, they weren't supposed to get elected. Who said they weren't supposed to get elected? Who said? Well, I think... The, the Muslim Brotherhood. They were because what what the step two was on the running for political power, you run enough to get elected to have a seat at the table, but not enough to be in charge because you don't know much. You ha- you don't know economic policy. You don't know trade policy. You don't know education policy. Yet there's all kinds of stuff for the Muslim Brotherhood political leaders around the world to learn. They weren't finished yet, mm-hmm. so they were supposed to get twenty or forty percent, like they did in Egypt, at, on the first round. So anyway, so that messed up the fourth step. And the fourth step, well, I don't want to go on a little. That gives you a a flavor for how they had an internal rethinking of their whole posture to the world. That whole posture has been helpful in their actually gaining uh, a responsible position of the leadership of a major country, which is Egypt. Mm -hmm. So now, will they be a good force around the world to address political, radical, violent Islam or not? My guess is they will be. Yeah, because for me, that's the more important issue. I, I, ah. I, the mechanism is important, but ah. actually the final, the, the, the ultimate goal is mm-hmm. what I think sheds a lot of light on, on what you could expect and, and sort of model uh, uh, of them to, to do in the future. Because motivation basically directs the, the actions, Well, right? but all political parties do want to do what? They want to take over power. So they're not, so we cannot say anything against them for that because that's what the Republicans want to do. That's sure. what the Democrats want sure, to do. Yes. All right, so the Muslim Brotherhood can do that too. 
Yes. And, and I would say that they will probably have a better way of the evolution of political Islam than will have bombs and missiles. And, and how is uh, the Millennium Project, uh, I'm trying to figure out, to weave okay. it into the our The relationship was, by, by starting the scenario process for the Middle East, it triggered other conversations. Uh, okay. Those other conversations are now bearing fruit. Mm -hmm. So it's like uh, when we did, uh, w w during the Cold War, uh, when you write scenarios about thermonuclear war. You don't want to have thermonuclear war. <laughs> yeah. But, but the process of doing it finds out the unknown unknowns and what needs to be done. So it helps you think. It's sort of like doing calisthenics before you go to the Olympics. You don't go to the Olympics and do your jumping jacks, but you do it before you get there. Yeah. So the scenario process engaged political thought leaders of the Middle East into new thought forms and new discussions, which have borne fruit. Uh, and we'll see if that continues. So there's an example of a relationship between a scenario process and actually the real world. Mm -hmm. And I mean, uh, you can argue that that's kind of what happened during the Cold War between the Soviet Union and the United States. You know, the, the beginning of that conversation was crucial. And, and you can even argue that perhaps the beginning of the conversation happened with the direct line during the Cuban Missile mm -hmm. or established mm -hmm. after the Cuban Missile Crisis, which eventually Correct. bore foot, fruit 20-some years right. later. So, yeah, the conversations are very important, which is why we are here today. <laughs> I was going to say, talk about patting yourself on the back. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> so, uh, so let's focus a, um, a little bit more. Before we get to the, to the State of the Future report that you recently issued, which is a very interesting, very incredibly detailed and monumental publication in some ways, both in terms of volume and in terms of specific details, uh, let me ask you, on a personal level, how did you get involved into doing future studies and things like that, and why? I know, I think, if I'm not mistaken, your undergraduate degree was in philosophy, like right. me. Right. So, so, right. so how do you end up in futurism? Well, first, I'd like to get rid of that word, futurism. Uh-huh. Because an ism is an ideology. Excellent. Okay. Right? And it borders the truth. Well, I got the truth and you don't got the truth because my ism's right and I'm going to kill you over it. So we want to open people's mind, not kill them. So future studies, futurology, futurosis, future anything you want to call it, but please not ism. Also, technically, from a historical, historical point of view, futurism was a school of art in Italy that robotized tile. And that's not what we're trying to do. Mm -hmm. uh, although some do. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, I was minding my own business doing a... Um, a master's degree in education at Antioch Graduate School in Vermont and the state of Vermont decided it wanted to uh, invent the future of its education system. So they wanted one teacher and one graduate student and one this and one that and they created this little blue ribbon commission and they sent me a box of Xeroxes by people like Herman Kahn and others and I went through these, these Xeroxes and after three hours, I got up from where I was sitting, and I went, whoa, that's interesting stuff. <laughs> and so then I, they, they taught us methodology, and then I decided to take the futures methodology and convert it into teaching methods. Mm -hmm. So, for example, take the cross-impact analysis created by my friend Ted Gordon. Imagine you're teaching biology. So you have a little matrix, you know, down one side, the respiratory system, skeletal system, endocrine system, and all that, and then across the top, you repeat them again. So you have a little matrix, all right? So you say, if the, if the circulatory system malfunctions, how does that affect the skeletal system? Mm -hmm. 
if the circulatory system's in good shape, how does that affect this? So you end up with the interdependence of the human body on one page. I said, that's pretty cool. So that got me whisked around the United States, giving speeches on the future of education, futures of curriculum development, and then one thing led to the next. Mm -hmm. And so fast forward now, you, you end up in 96, 98, uh, sort of planting the seeds for creating the Millennium Project. Uh, 88, you, 1988 was the early conversation. 88 was the conversation. It was the first conversation. We did a pre-feasibility study in 91, 92, and then we did a three-year feasibility study after that, and we didn't start operation until 96. It was a long process. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, so let me ask you this then. I think uh, it, your State of the Future report has been coming out for about 15 years now. Mm -hmm. um, is that the most important publication that, or the most important, uh, uh, the most valuable product or result that you have uh, created or published in a way? Probably. Uh, probably. I'd also say in parallel, we produce the futures methodology, mm -hmm. uh, futures research methodology is version one, two, and three. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's the largest collection of methods to explore the future internationally peer-reviewed in one source ever been put together. It's, um, it's, it in its own right is 100% monumental. I mean, if, if that's all we did, that would be... And you use that, that methodology to sort of structure the State of the Future report, I imagine. No. Um, would we to be that good? <laughs> the, 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 the methods is 39 chapters. Mm -hmm. right? The first chapter is Introduction of Methodology, and the last chapter is Synthesis and Future. So in the middle, there's 37 different methods or categories of methods, like, like computer model simulation is like one method category. Uh -huh. uh, Delphi is one. Uh, uh, causal layer to approach is another one. Uh, uh, prediction markets is another one. We can't use, I mean, it's just too much. It would be great if we did. Mm -hmm. So which ones are the ones that, that you use for uh, the state of the future report? Well, several. One is environmental scanning. We have all these nodes around the world. They're keeping track of change around the world. And we pull that together. So using our nodes around the world is a unique method all by itself. Mm -hmm. uh, as, a, as I mentioned, transinstitutional approach, so you're not just getting one side of the coin. Mm -hmm. uh, then we also uh, use uh, uh, the Delphi technique to collect those judgments and have them rated. Uh, we, saw, we also use trend impact analysis in our, another method called a State of the Future Index. Mm -hmm. It's an index of how we're doing in the future, like we have a cost of living index for the present, See the future indexes for a 10-year future. Um, we also obviously do scenario construction as well. So there's about maybe five, six methods that we use. But it would be great if we were able to use all of the methods. <laughs> so for those who want to find out more about the futures research methodology 1 through 3.0, uh, uh, how do they get those? Uh, if they can just go to our website. It's the, the millennium hyphen project.org and on the right side they'll see uh, first uh, the state of the future then below that will be the methodology so they click on the methodology and it tells them how to get it is it the paid so is it the subscription model is it uh, free download how does that work ah we're in that transition right as we speak <laughs> <laughs> right now it's a one-shot paid you go there you pay you either get it well either send it to you as a CD or you can download it your mm -hmm. choice mm -hmm. uh, however 
as we get this collective intelligence system going properly, mm-hmm. it'll be in there. So if somebody, so they don't have to wait to version 4.0 in a couple of years to get the new one. If if you or one of your viewers comes up with a new method or a new variation of a method, mm-hmm. and then we peer review it like any other system, peer yes. review it, then boom, it goes in and it's there, available for the next person who clicks it on. Mm-hmm. So nice. yes, right in the past it's been version one, then version two, then version three. And but from here on out, if all goes well, it becomes an ongoing updated in real time. So it's kind of crowdsourced, but for those who want to download it, is it uh you said it's it's a it's paid it's paid model for us on a CD yeah, it's, or it's, a digital yeah, it's, download. Forty nine dollars. I mean I see. It's it's a lot cheaper than a textbook on one method. <laughs> I, I agree. I agree entirely, yes. Yeah. Um, so, so tell us a little bit more about the latest uh, State of the Future report, the 2011 version. What right. are sort of the highlights or the main points that, that really, you know, we, we need to yeah. be aware of? I, uh, the, this is, I always sigh because there's so many things that can be, as you pointed out, it's a monumental study. Uh, and so if you interview another person on your project tomorrow morning, you may get a completely different <laughs> cut. But here's my... my cut. One is the when Rio plus 20 happened, uh, everybody was unhappy with what nation states were doing. Mm-hmm. And that's part of the story. I think the other part of the story, which is probably more important, um, is that outside of... I, I've been to these before. Uh, I didn't go to that one. Um, but outside of the main nation state meetings, you have businesses that really care mm-hmm. and want to do something. You have NGOs that are clearly committed and are doing some things. Uh, you have universities that got courses and programs and research that they're doing. Talking together and concluding, what are we waiting for nation states for? They're not, why? I mean, I don't need a nation state to tell me to collaborate with that university's program to do this demonstration project on this development thing I'm doing over here. I don't need the nation state for that. I don't, what, what am I waiting for? Uh, so this idea of, of accepting that nation states are not the actors on a lot of these things is, I think, a bit new. We just assume that the head of the pyramid of decision-making is the nation state. Maybe that's not correct. Mm-hmm. That's very interesting. So non-state actors become increasingly empowered in our... And the synergies among them. That's, to me, the because you've always had non-state actors. That's been going on for some time. But now starting to create synergies, these adhocracies, so to speak, mm-hmm. the t- term Alvin Toffler coined some time ago, is coming to the fore. Another one, I just, I'll be going in a couple of weeks to a conference um, in, in Eastern Europe... Where that, which I've gone to a couple of years ago, same thing. Where these cities are beginning to say the same thing. What are we waiting for? Mm-hmm. We city, we cities, representative cities, have been around longer than nation states. So we're the continuity, not these dotted lines across Europe. Mm-hmm. And so why don't we mayors of these cities start to collaborate? We can do our Danube regional stuff. And, and where you need nation states for, fine. But if you don't, don't start there. Start with, you know, who are the actors, who are the implementers for real anyway? 
What do you got to go ask permission for, the, for all, a lot of these things? There's some things you do. You've got certain regulations you want to change. Okay. But not everything. So I think that one of the things was not so much an anti-nation state. I don't want it to sound that way because you still need nation state to set the rules. It's sort of like in the back of your brain. You've got the, the autonomic nervous system running your heart, your digestion. You still want to do that. But the action is up here. Mm-hmm. So the action is not in the nation states. The action is the non-state actors. So let's let them be the frontal lobe of the humanity and let the nation states do that, you know, making sure the plumbing works, picking up the garbage and so forth. Not asking the nation state to lead civilization because it's clear it's not doing it. Okay. So that's, that's one, one point. Um, let's see, what else is there? Oh, there's so many things to say. <laughs> let, me, let, let me say that one, and then maybe you can ask somebody else uh, on your show as well. Uh, but I'd like your, your viewers, by the way, without pay, they don't have to pay a penny. They can go get the executive summary. If they go to the na- website um, and go to uh, that right-hand corner where it says the future there, and click that on, scroll down, skip the order part, <laughs> scroll down where it says executive summary. Click that. You can download that free of charge. It's got six pages of stuff. I, and, and, well, I would add another thing, too. It's increasingly becoming clear, and since you use the word singularity, it's not news to you. Uh, it's increasingly clear that science as a methodology is changing with uh, computational biology, computational physics, computational engineering, computational everything. You know, the old scientific method is you and I would have to observe something, mm-hmm. discuss it, come up with a hypothesis, design some experiment, run the experiment, test the results, wait a year to get published in a scientific journal, make sure somebody else does replication of it to make sure it's real, and then we have scientific, quote, potential truth, quote, unquote. Mm -hmm. We all know truth is an irregular concept. Anyway, um, that's too slow. So now you've got like like people who say don't do animal experiments. Okay, fine. Let's 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 do it on a computer simulation. We're now getting good enough to do that. So computational everything um, uh, is coming to the fore. You know, we are doing it with digital uh, movies and so forth. And of course, since you got the word singularity in there, you're aware of you know the acceleration of the acceleration, the acceleration. And since everything gets attached to that acceleration then the improvement possibilities are extraordinary. And this is a repeating theme in the, in the repelling project, but it's, it's becoming more strong, is that we're in a race between the bewildering number of answers. Mm-hmm. I mean, when people say, well, how do we do sustainable development? It's not that we don't know. It's we don't have an agreement. There are thousands and thousands and thousands of things that people know should be done. Mm-hmm. We're overloaded with answers. So, so you got, on one hand, the overloading of answers and the overloading of the complexity of the problems. So we're in a race between these two. and how to, That's one of the reasons we want to get the collective intelligence system doing. You may remember the book called The uh, Whole Earth Catalog. Mm-hmm. Huh? Yeah. Well, The Whole Stuart Earth Catalog. Grant. Yeah, exactly and right. Kevin Kelly, I think. That's right. Yeah. So these guys had the same problem, but the, but the drama was less profound then. Mm-hmm. So doing a whole Earth catalog like they did would have to be digital and vastly, vastly large, larger, and that's what we've got to do. Mm-hmm. So it's a modest uh, undertaking. Yeah, 
<laughs> but but it, it's 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 got to be. I mean, you know, like uh, your science fiction writers. You know, if they are looking back to the present tense, of course we had to put together some collective intelligence system. The question is who, how, and when. Mm -hmm. So 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 let me ask you then this: Is there any other lesson that you learned, not not specifically this year from this edition of the report, but from doing it over and over and over, fifteen times in a row? Yeah. Is there a bigger lesson there? Yeah, we are winning more than we're losing. That's fantastic. And we can say that uh, with as much authority as anybody on the planet. Why? Wow. Because, because we have asked people, what's going on? How do you measure the good? How do you measure the bad? What are the indicators? You know, we've been going through this, you know, as you've been pointing out, year after year after year, more consistently than anybody on the planet. And we're winning because when, when I update stuff, most of the time, obviously not all the time, mm -hmm. but most of the time we're changing data and it's moving in a good way, not a bad way. Now, wow. you can say, well, it's not improving as fast as it is. Yeah, but it's improving, by God, it's improving. Mm -hmm. We're winning. Now, where we're losing is deadly serious. Okay, so you can't go to sleep. Yeah. But you got no reason and no right to be pessimistic. And a pessimist is a coward because they don't have to tell you how it can work. Mm-hmm. All they got to do is say, impossible. <laughs> Give me another glass of wine. Impossible. <laughs> I don't have to think. I don't have to know nothing. It's impossible. We're going downhill. That's coward. That's, that's using your brain for nothing. Now, the optimist, on the other hand, that thinks that everything's going to be great, hey, everything's going to be great. Don't worry about it. They're stupid, too, <laughs> because they're, both extremes are wrong. Because if you think everything's going to be great, you don't try. And if you think everything's going to be terrible, you don't try either. I think the rational position is actually where we are. We're winning more than we're losing. So there is a reason to think we can win, can, on, but it's not over yet because one of the greatest threats for we human beings to address is how do you prevent a single individual making a bioweapon mm -hmm. that has consequences more than you're willing to believe? Mm -hmm. We're not there yet, but that's one of the things we've got to work on. There's a lot of other ones we've got to work on, too. But I would say one of the key lessons is uh, pessimism should be stopped. It's a cowardly intellectual position. Well, uh, the, this, yeah. this, this is like a fantastic message, and, and I'm, I'm, it, it's... It's very energizing to hear that from someone who's been doing it for 15 years on a regular basis because there's so much pessimism out there. And it's really hard to, to, to combat. Uh, so that message, I think, needs to go out more often than it does. Uh, and, and so it's really hard for me now to move to the final two questions because it's, <laughs> it's going to be really hard for us to beat okay. that message. But So you already mentioned, but perhaps let's see if you can repeat it just for clarity. Uh, what's the best place for people to go and learn more about you and, and the work that you do, the Millennium Project? Uh, well, they, they can uh, go to the three W's, dot, millennium with two N's and two L's, hyphen project.org, mm -hmm. and they can mess around on the website there. Mm -hmm. A lot of stuff is available. Uh, we have a workbench for the collective intelligence, which is not ready for prime time, but your viewers... Uh, if they like, they can go mess around. They, they, a lot of it's not available because they're not registered or such, but they can go look around. And that's um, the workbench is the three W's, and it's 
T H E M P, like the M P, T H E M P dot info. So you can go in there and get a sense of what's evolving. Um, and because um, in, in there, the 15 challenges are there, but in the old days, you had the text in the state of the future. Now you've got the text, but you've got discussion groups, you've got news feeds, you've got a scanning system, you've got computer models, you've got a situation chart. Uh, and soon we'll be adding uh, the best book series on each of these things. And all of them are interactable, so you can change. If someone says, well, that news feed turns out to be not reliable for these reasons, and then the group discusses it, boom, that news feed's out, and new news feeds are in. Mm -hmm. So the whole system is a flexible like your, like your brain. Fantastic. And if they want to find out about me, it's easy. They just Google Jerome Glenn and go to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> or just come and watch this interview with you on singularityweblog.com. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, can we beat that message? Uh, if you want people to take a single message, the, the best ah. thing or the most important thing that they should take away from this conversation with you today, what would you like that to be? <sighs> There's a whole lot of them. But one, <laughs> but one that immediately comes to mind is that maybe the most important thing is not to be looking for the most important thing. Ha, another gem. Would In you mind saying yeah. a little more? Yeah. Okay, let's say that you have a panel and you ask that question. And one says, water is the most important issue. The water tables are falling around the world. 40% of the world gets this water from watersheds controlled by two or more countries. This is a prescription for unending war on the planet. Mm -hmm. And like I said, that's not the most important problem. Energy is, you give me enough energy, I'll solve your water problem. Somebody says, no, no, governance is the most important problem. You give me right governance and we'll take care of both of your problems. And so, no, you do the gender relationships and humanity will actually work. Mm -hmm. you know, so it goes on and on. I have heard people say that each, for each one of our 15 challenges, that's the most important one. Yeah, usually they're on the field. Right. Now, so my attitude is if you can tell me which is more important, the heart or the brain, then maybe I'll answer your question. So I think one of the takeaways is is for people to try not to look at what is the most important thing. Maybe they should look at what's the most important thing for you to do. Mm -hmm. <laughs> what is your situation? What is your knowledge? What is your interest? What is your geographic location? What institutions are you working with? That's a much better question. What is the most important thing for you? Not for the world. Because we're not, you don't have to have agreement. That's why we have 15 global challenges. That's a, a way to understand global change. Just like in biology, you've got the respiratory system, skeletal system. All the, you, when you study biology, you study all those systems and how they relate as an organism. Mm -hmm. We've got to do that for the planet. How do we understand the planet as a whole? And then what's my role in it? So that would be one of the messages. Uh, and it's, a, it's another fantastic one. Uh, and it rings very true to me because it also says in a way that it's it's not always the obvious thing that you would think uh, is the best uh, you know uh, you know thing to investigate and also in our accelerating and increasingly crazily interconnected and complexly connected world you know the small pebbles are perhaps getting to be as big as the big ones or the obvious ones Sure, look at the guy in Tunisia, one guy. Absolutely, yeah. Now, of course, conditions had to be there, but yeah. one guy. The guy who burned himself, you mean, right? Yes. That's right. Yes, and he triggered the whole Middle East. Absolutely, yeah. Wow. Okay, so that's very interesting. I really like that. Yeah, but don't go out there and burn yourself. Live. 
<laughs> for what you, it, it's one thing to die for what you believe in. Now let's want people to live for what they believe in. <laughs> I agree. I agree. But, you know, we have to be willing sometimes to, to make the sacrifices to, to cause the change that we want to, to cause. Uh, but uh, unfortunately, we've been talking for about an hour, so I'm going to have to thank you very much okay. for spending so much time with us. And uh, Jerome C. Glenn, uh, I really appreciate uh, this interview with you. Uh, you're welcome. Nice to be with you. Take care.